seated. We're in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we turn today to Colossians chapter 3. We're only going to be considering three verses, and um, that under the heading, How Can I Conquer Lust? Uh, we will uh, take up the, the rest of that paragraph next week, but we have plenty to talk about here in chapter 3 at the beginning. I would like to uh, back up to verse 1 for context, and we'll read down to, uh, through verse 7. From Colossians chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once, uh, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Our Father in heaven, we uh, turn to this short portion of your word in an important time, in a needy day, uh, pray that you would renew our minds and that you would restore our hearts. We have all been affected by the spirit of an evil age, and so it is, our Father, we pray that as we seek again those things above where Christ is, that the refreshing and beautiful truth which he has given us here would be our strength and our stay. We pray that you would bless us today in your word through Christ, uh, we ask, amen. Well, we have to move our garden this year at our house to a new location. And what if I told you that I've got a plan? I've got a plan to save time and effort this year rather than do the whole uh, rigmarole of making a new garden plot. I've decided, what if I told you this? I'm going to go to the field next to my house and I'm just going to push some seeds down through the grass and weeds and uh, put them into the ground. And don't worry, I'll water and fertilize them. What do, you, what do you think of my great idea for making a garden? You say, David, that's dumb. You're never gonna grow anything that way. You gotta clear the ground. You gotta turn over the earth. You gotta get well below the weeds if you wanna see anything come up. Well, that's true. Um, otherwise, of course, anything that I plant would be choked out immediately before it even gets going. Exactly. And in the passage before us, Paul tells us Um, about uh, clearing out some weeds. Before he tells us about the good things, the good fruits that we are going to be bearing, he's going to have to clear out some bad. Now, this may not be the prettiest part of a garden, but it's very important, and that's what we'll be considering today. Last time, we looked at the blessed first four verses of chapter 3, which I read to you again, as Paul transitions from theology, the first two chapters, to Christian living in the last two chapters. And it's been said that a good theology turns into a good biology grown. That is to say, the, the truth of Christ tells us how to live, or as Moody once put it, every 
Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Uh, ought to be teaching you how to walk. Living out what you know to be true. Well, no more corny jokes. Last time we saw that the holiness of life is the inevitable result of salvation, never its cause. We Christians have been very freely granted life, life from the dead, everlasting life in Christ. Paul began his letter teaching us about the Lord and saying how God has sent his son to die for our sins, to reconcile us to himself, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Paul reminded us in so many ways that our salvation, our hope of everlasting life depends not on ourselves, not on our wisdom, not on our efforts or deserving or spirituality, but entirely on Christ. And you know, some people think about religion as though it were man's search for God. But in the Bible, God seeks out man. God finds him. God reconciles him at a great cost and renews him by divine power. That is salvation. And once we have been redeemed and changed by the grace, mercy, and power of God, well, there is a new life that's waiting for us to live. We simply can't live our old life anymore because we're not the same people that we once were. I've, uh, I've told you before about Augustine, about how one day as a Christian man he was walking down the street and there he saw on the street an immoral woman he used to know very well. And he averted his eyes and, and, and she came up to him and, and said, it is I, Augustine. And he replied, yes, but it is no longer I, Augustine. I'm not the person that I once was. And so it is with you. Paul says in our passage, you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Well, we are not what we once were, but what we want to know is how do we therefore live? And Paul begins his explanation of the Christian life in his typical way. Having reminded us that to live is Christ, he then urges us, therefore, to put to death our old sins and, we'll see next week, to put on the glorious new life that Christ is making new within us. We'll consider the positives next week, which are, of course, the most important part of all this, but he begins here by clearing the ground, by uprooting some weeds that would make us unfruitful, and that's where we find ourselves now in verses 5 through 7. We're going to consider this command and the reasons and the encouragement and the practice. That'll be our four points for today. Uh, the command, reason, encouragement, and practice. The first point's the longest. Well, the first point and the fourth, fourth point are the longest, so, okay. Uh, first point, uh, the command. Verse five, our passage for today. Therefore, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, end quote. Now, you'll want to know, uh, what does he mean, put to death your members that are on the earth? Your members? Well, it's a, it's a figure of speech that we also use in English. It's called a metonymy. Uh, maybe you've heard somebody say here in the South, hey, don't give me any of your lip. 
Lip, of course, represents the, the words that are coming out of our lips. And similarly, when Paul says, put to death your members, it's a nice way of saying the, the sins that your members are committing, as the context immediately makes clear. And you notice that the command is put in an extremely strong, dramatic way. Put to death. Very strong. Paul doesn't say, you should try to control your evil acts and attitudes. Oh, no. He says, murder them. Uh, there's an old cartoon where a woman is at a Bible study, and uh, she says, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. Uh, there is nothing of that spirit here, you notice. Uh, Paul says, wipe them out, exterminate them. Uh, the old word, mortify them. Nothing less than a violent death will do for them. Jesus, of course, speaks in the same radical way in the Sermon on the Mount when he warns against lust, saying, if your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, of course, you could lust just as easily with, with, with two eyes or one eye. It's not a matter of getting rid of the member, but it, it, it means radical action to kill sin. Uh, Paul, you see, believes in the power of negative thinking. You say, wait a minute, I thought it was the power of positive thinking. Well, that's good too, but Paul believes in the power of negative thinking as well. He said, uh, you know, uh, need to get rid of these things. The Christian life is like, like growing a garden. The gardener's going to have to get down there and pull the weeds. I mean, it has to be done. That is the negative part of growing a garden. It's, it's not the point of a garden, but you can't have the same old sins in your life constantly seeking to choke out your new life in Christ. You're, you're not going to bring fruit to maturity that way. If you're trying to live that way, if, if you are trying to live that way as a Christian, with your old sins and your new life, uh, this is a dramatic wake-up call. It is time to fight to the death. That is the death of your sins. Paul begins with this dramatic negative. Mortify. And he, he actually gives five negatives to be specific, all sexual sins. He starts piling the words on top of the other. Let me explain. Uh, uh, and, and, and perhaps this was an issue in the church at Colossae, I, I can't say. Perhaps it was just a fact of life in the ancient world. But Paul begins with fornication. Fornication. Uh, a good English word that people hardly know anymore. But if I tell you the Greek word, you probably won't forget it. The Greek word is porneia. Porneia. The, the general Greek word for every kind of sexual sin, every kind of extramarital sexual activity you can think of. Broader than adultery, which assumes that one of the people is married, it includes sex between unmarried people, child molestation, uh, much, much more, and if you're curious, yes, including homosexuality. I should point out in passing that there's a book out there that incorrectly tells Christians that um, the church's mistaken condemnation of homosexual sin rests on only six passages that are misunderstood. And the author, of course, ignores a great many passages, including those that refer to homosexuality as 
porneia, or the verb expornuo. For example, Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, same word, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Okay, uh, what I'm saying is, uh, people these days are, are trying to sift some of these sins and say, well, this isn't a sin, it's just those other sexual sins. Look, they had all the same sins we do in the ancient world. I mean, they had eminent philosophers saying that such relations were actually the best kind. There is nothing new under the sun. So uh, the same book says that, uh, you know, well, m maybe homosexual activity can be a sin, but not the desire, sometimes referred to as side B Christianity. James White, supposedly a conservative evangelical psychiatrist, in his very popular book, Eros Defiled, in a varsity press some years ago, wrote, let's make no mistake about what the Bible condemns. Nowhere is a man or woman condemned for having homosexual feelings, it is the act, not the urge, that is condemned. Well, friends, this is, this is never the case of any sexual sin. The urge is just as well condemned as you can see by Paul's next four words. So, are you with me on this? I feel like I'm going kind of quickly. Uh, uh, th this, this word, sexual immorality, is a word of all sexual sin. I'm not trying to focus on any in particular, except so much that people, some people today are saying, well, it doesn't mean that sin. And what I'm saying is, yes, it does. Well, if it does, someone will say, it doesn't mean the desire, only the deed. Let's go to the next, next word. Uncleanness. Some of you have impurity, which in the Bible includes, of course, both deed and thought, reminding us that sexual sin defiles us, impurity, uncleanness. The third and the fourth words, passion and evil desire, even more to the point inside, very similar words. They both focus on this strong inner push toward sexual sin, which makes us justify all kinds of things, doesn't it? Uh, sexual desires, especially once aroused, are very powerful, and you are not then in a calm and rational state of mind. Um, and if you don't control such thoughts, they will control you. And Paul's final word is covetousness. I realize some of you have that as greed, but uh, my New King James has covetousness, which is preferable, and I'll explain why. It's the ordinary word found in the Tenth Commandment. We don't use that word very much as Christians, but when we do use it, we tend to think about being greedy for money or for things. But this word does not merely mean greediness for things or money. Remember the Tenth Commandment, which also says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And this word is flexible that way. Greedy for things, greedy for people. That is to say, covetousness includes all lust as well, desiring who is not right for you to have. And in the New Testament, refers also with some regularity to sexual desire. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter, 2 Peter 2, uh, it, it, it can also just as easily have the sense of lust 
Lust for things, lust for people. One writer explains it this way. If it's the desire for money, covetous will lead us to theft. If it's the desire for prestige, it leads us to evil ambition. If it's the desire for power, it leads to tyranny. And if it's the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. And so Paul says that covetousness is idolatry here. Did you notice that? See, where did that come from? That's a pretty heavy word. In the Bible, that's like the cardinal sin of Israel, right? What, what, why does he say covetousness is idolatry? Because, of course, when I want what I want, no matter what God has to say about it, then I have put myself in God's place. If I am serving my desires rather than God's will, if I am even identifying myself, not as a creature in his image, but identifying myself by my sexual desires, it's a kind of self-worship. I made myself the center. So, the ancient world was dominated by all manner of sexual sin. And I would add, and perhaps you'd agree, that American culture is uh, rapidly heading back to that world as it was before Christianity came into it. And in a world like theirs, or like ours, when everybody's doing it, there's this danger of being deceived by smooth talk about sexual sins and similar things. In fact, uh, Paul writes elsewhere, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Well, that is the plain truth, and Paul tells it to us in this passage in a hard-hitting way, in a command. Now you're alive in Christ, therefore mortify these deeds and desires. Point one, the command, which uh, you'll recognize is a, a very strong shift from his approach to this point. But to this command, Paul joins point two, the warning. The warning. I had reason before, but actually warning is more to the point here. The warning. And you have to love this about the Bible. It doesn't just call for a blind obedience. It doesn't just say, now you get rid of that stuff. It tells you why. It even gives you reasons, plural, even in this letter. But here in line, it gives you a negative reason. God is going to judge the world for these things. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. As much as the world cannot even fathom why God would be so upset about what I'm doing with my body. Paul says, look, if God is truly going to judge the world for these things, as you know, why do you want to get involved in them? Simple logic. The cross of Christ proves that God will judge sin. Don't stand at the foot of the cross and say, God's not going to judge sin. There it is. That's why he went. The implicit warning here is that if you don't kill it, it's going to kill you. 
So we, we, we know sometimes you go by a sign on a, on a door and uh, electrical closet, some kind of uh, things going on here, and it says, do not enter. Your first thought is, hmm, wonder what's in there. Uh, I want to go see. But then you keep reading the sign. It might say, do not enter, reason given here, high voltage. Aha. Now there's a positive reason for a negative command. And the positive reason is uh, we really don't want you to end up fried to a crisp. So why don't you stay out there? Um, and anytime you read any command in the Bible that says thou shalt not, it's not like God's trying to cramp your style. He wants you truly to live. And so there are always positive reasons, even for negative commands, because, I mean, sex is like fire. It's amazing in the fireplace. On your wood floor, not so amazing. It will quickly destroy your home, and it might just take your own life in the process. And similarly, unmortified sexual desires have ruined a great many marriages and lives. A seminary professor uh, of a friend of mine was telling his class uh, as tears came to his eyes and he lowered his voice to a whisper. And with 40 years of pastoral experience, the man said, men, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you now, but 80% of all the woe, the heartache, the evil in people's lives come from breaking the seventh commandment. It's hard to believe. It's not that way on the movie Titanic, is it? Women, if you've seen Titanic, you've been lied to. You've been told that an instant sex will buy you sacrificial love. You've been told that a one-night fling can become the very highlight of your life. You've been told that the glory of old age comes from the sins of one's youth. That is not just false, it's dumb. It's foolish. But this is a very foolish age. In 1766, Captain Samuel Wallace discovered the island of Tahiti in the South Pacific. And uh, soon his men discovered that they could buy a night with a Tahitian woman for the price of a single nail. And Wallace's men almost took their ship apart in the pursuit of nails. And so it is in our foolish world today. And God's judgment has already begun. The unbridled pursuit of sexual pleasure at any cost already begins to show the judgment of God. The integrity of our society is being undone. People are being told obvious lies. They're told to be defined by their sexual desires. They, they believe the billboard. You see that billboard around, not as popular now, but uh, life is short, have an affair. That, that is the hopelessness and misery that characterized the ancient world and that is now characterizing more and more our world today. When people, people don't even want to get married anymore because they're sure it won't make them happy. Now, now God has said, this is a good gift, people. Sex is a good gift. And like all of good gifts, he tells us how it could bring us great joy if you'll just start listening and heeding the warnings. So the warning, point two. 
This is a heavy sermon so far. We come now to point three, the encouragement. The encouragement, uh, verse seven. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Well, what's the encouragement there? The point is, of course, that no matter how enslaved people are and have been to sexual immorality or any other sin, that there is freedom and strength and a future at the cross of Christ where God's wrath, point two, and his love have kissed. And those old desires may linger and the old memories slow to fade. But here in Christ, there is this far greater truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul could say, I'm chief. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And therefore, in verse 7, you notice that both walked and lived are past tense. This was your life before, but now it's all new. He's writing this to people who've been Christians perhaps a few years, but they are new in Christ. And this is the encouragement. This is the hope. And if, if you're not a Christian, I appreciate you listening to all this. You said, yeah, this sounds pretty much just like I thought church would sound, right? Uh, uh, he, he has lots more to say, I assure you. I'm trying to be faithful to the passage. But the point is, the call that this book makes is not to come up to this high calling of life, this high moral standard that, that God will accept you and that you can be saved. The call in this book, in this very letter, is to come all the way down, down, down to where we met Jesus at the foot of his cross, where, where, where we heard such a command and heard such a warning and beat our breast and said, God, be merciful then to me, a sinner. But it was there at that low place that we met a Savior who delivered us, chapter 113, from the power of darkness, gave us a reason to live, told us what living meant that some of us didn't even know, washed us of our sins, gave us his own spirit. And so we could say, yeah, it's no longer I, Augustine. It's no longer I, Kevin. It's no longer I, Tim. It is no longer I. I am new. In fact, you want to know what happened to Augustine? I put it on the back of the bulletin so that you might meditate on it and ponder. He describes our experience like this. Our, our soul is like a house, small for you to enter but we pray that you will enlarge it. It's in ruins, but we ask you to remake it. It contains much that you will not be pleased to see. This we know and do not hide. But to whom can we cry except to you? Forgive us, O oh Lord. Cleanse us from our sins, O oh Lord, and our secret sins. In your mercy, Lord our God, Tell us what you are to us. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Psalm 35. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Amen.
in the Lord we are fully known. All of our past, all of our wicked desires, all that we thought last night included, fully known, yet fully loved. And there is his grace, and here is his power, and here is his promise. And that we are not what we were, and we are not yet what we shall be. But we have known the Lord, and Jesus is making all things new. He has made all things new. The encouragement, point three. And fourth, and finally, I want this to be personally helpful to you all. So point four is the practice. The practice. All right, so there's this very high standard, not just about how we're to live outwardly, but the very state of our hearts. There's this, this dread warning. There's this great encouragement, but, but how? How are we going to live this way? The practice. This letter is written to people from pagan backgrounds who'd been involved in some pretty serious sins. And how are, how are these, these people supposed to live a whole new life from the inside out? I mean, they didn't have a video series by famous Christian counselors. They didn't even have Christian counselors. There were none. There were no magazines with self-help articles. What are they supposed to do? Well, this is why Paul is writing. To answer this question, we must connect this passage to the... The, the greater message, what's before and what's after it. And so in this matter of the practice, although there's many things I could bring up, I'm going to try to highlight four things for you that you, Christian, brother and sister, may be able to make progress. Victory in Jesus, full victory is coming, but we can truly know the Lord and truly grow in holiness and grace. How? Well, I'm going to highlight two things that are right before this passage. Abide in Christ and renew your mind. First, abide in Christ, which we've already covered by way of review. The power for this new life does not come from you. Christ is your life. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Verses 1 and 4. The power you need is above. He is all our spiritual strength. Without him, you can do nothing. So chapter 2, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Uh, this is by way of review. The power is in Christ. If the power is above. Seek it above. Abide in him. Second, renew your mind. Renew your mind. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul has just given us two wonderful chapters to teach us what's happened to us and why and how. So that now, verse 2, we might set our mind on things above, not things on the earth. You died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You see, um, frankly, if, if your life is going to change, you need a great love. You need a... a Powerful love that's going to be able to drive out other things. And how are we going to get such a love that is greater than our lust, frankly? Well, you need reasons. You need motivations to transform and grow. 
And this is what he's given you to show us Christ in all of his glory and beauty and power and, and majesty and all that he's done for us freely and fully that our hearts might be drawn out to him. This one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who has humbled himself and given himself to death that we might live, that is now exalted, that we might seek and find our life in him. So you need to know these reasons have this motivation to cultivate this love. In other words, you need to know this word and apply it to your heart and pray it into you. So renew your mind, which will also transform that heart and redirect your life. So these are the two things that I've already spoken of before, but just highlighting immediately before this passage. The practice, you need to abide in Christ and renew your mind. Two things right after this passage, I'll also highlight... Um, Pursue your new life. Pursue your new life, which we'll take up next week, but here's a preview, free of charge. We're to join this radical putting to death of our remaining sins with an even more energetic, living, godly in Christ Jesus. Um. You might notice that uh, some of the trees out here, they still have their leaves. I mean, they're all, all brown, of course. They're all dead. They've been clinging on there despite all the uh, ice and, and wind and foul weather. It's, it's amazing. You know what's going to finally get rid of all that old stuff? The new life, when it comes in, is going to push out the old. And the point of Christianity, by the way, people, is not just no, but yes. I mean, you've got to clear the ground. Okay. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer put, put it really well. He said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. It's less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. There's an evil we must put off. Yeah. But, however, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, and uh, put on love, he goes on to say, and describes the new life and the joy of it that's able to get rid of the old. If you clear the ground of your garden, but you just leave the garden bare and empty, you don't put anything in it, you clear the ground, you just leave it there, it'll be full of weeds in two weeks. But you start to cultivate beautiful fruit. You start getting those June berries in. Start covering the ground. And then you start tasting the fruit of your labor. Well, it's much easier to keep the weeds down then because you have healthy growth and you have delight and power to pursue, point three, your new life. I want to get more specific here because you have to put on the opposite of what you put off. Maybe some of you are not married. Well, what are you going to do? You say, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a rejoice in the wife of my youth, but I do not have that. What, what am I going to do? Well, I ask you, what does Paul do? He writes in 1 Corinthians 7, he who's unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. And his point, his larger point is, Look, all, all that we long for in the fundamentals of happiness, 
and the satisfaction of soul are ultimately not found in a husband or wife, wonderful as they are, but in the Lord himself. Many people are expecting things from their marriage right now. People are expecting things from marriage and sexuality, which they can't give, which they were never designed to give. You need to pursue your new life as it is right now. You have advantages. You have advantages that I don't have as a married man. What, what advantages you have to serve the Lord and to find out that there is an even greater and more satisfying and longer lasting love than a spouse. There is more meaning to be had in your life than even a, a spouse. Seek and find your joy now in the Lord in serving him. And in these and other ways, pursue your new life. Now, fourth and finally, and my fourth point on the practice, you need to be strengthened by the church, he says. He goes on uh, to describe how you were called in one body. Uh, here in the church where Christ is all and in all, and that we are to let that word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and, and so forth, verse 11, 15, 16. It, here in the church, we have a shared commitment to following the Lord in truth, which you need in these confusing times when there are many siren voices, when there are many professors with many letters after their names who will tell you, especially young men and young women, that there's a better way than a godly life. You need people with a shared commitment. You need people who will care for each other, to care for those in marriage and singleness alike. We have ministries here. We have re-engage for married couples. We have regeneration for singles, for men and women uh, who are especially struggling, want, want to be able to lay it on the line with other brothers and sisters who have the same struggles, who are pursuing the same thing as you. We, we need this commitment. We need this mutual care. We enjoy here companionship. Companionship. Paul writes elsewhere, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And just as bad company does ruin good morals, so good company is a spur to all that's holy. What opportunity you singles especially have now to cultivate deep, loving, satisfying, lasting relationships that will last you a lifetime and beyond. Now you, you, you don't yet have that love of your life that you long for. What do you have? What has the Lord given you? He has given you companionship. So strengthened by the church to find here commitment care companionship and compassion compassion for those who have sinned sexually many of us have plenty of such sins and the scars to prove it and we also have known the power of forgiveness and we know how to help you find it and we're not on our high horse. We're not saying we are somebody. We're saying that Christ is our somebody. That he has made all the difference. And this is not a theory. 
this is life as it's meant to be lived. So I say this in conclusion to you after I've given you, what, four points and then four sub-points under my fourth point and four sub-sub-points under my last sub-point. Okay, all right. This really is the conclusion. I say in conclusion, all of us, every last one of us, are ashamed of the sins of our past, one way or another, in this very area. But in the church, we are not ashamed of you. You are the trophies of Christ's grace. We glory in the fact that, by God's grace, you are no longer the people that you once were. And we love you, and we are thankful for you, and we are proud of you. Not because of who you are, but because of what Christ is doing. Christ, who is our life. And if you have sinned greatly, if you're not a Christian, you have sinned greatly, perhaps. And you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus delights to save. The people whom we long to have among us. The people who are redeemed by the mighty power of Christ. Come now, he says, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Maybe you're here this morning, you've been wounded by somebody else in these ways. Broken faith hurt you. You have suffered grievously because of someone else's lack of self-control and these very sins. And I say that the Lord is able to give you also joy and peace and faithfulness, and that even here, again, commitment, companionship, compassion, and care, we, we understand. And whoever we are, married or single at the moment, we know that there is someone who's promised to love us deeply, someone who will be faithful to us all of our days, who will not do us wrong, but do us good, now and forever, someone whose love far surpasses the love of husbands to wives or wives to husbands. There is a love far richer, far more beautiful, and far more lasting. For the day will soon come when we will no longer marry or be given in marriage, Jesus says, but we will be forevermore with the Lord, our husband. And all that has been promised to the world in this momentary marriage will at last come forever true and be fulfilled at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As the bride, all prepared for her husband, we read in Revelation, comes forth with fine linen, white and clean, which is the righteousness of the saints. And the great theme is struck up, here comes the bride. And then we shall always be with the Lord. And that is our hope and our stay. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you might mortify in us all that is drawing us away from finding our full joy and life and love and satisfaction in Christ. You have found us out this day. And we, we confess that uh, though the weeds be cleared out one day, they're back again tomorrow. Oh, that we might more desire him and delight in Christ more. We pray that in him 
our homes, our marriages might find new heights of joy and communion in you. We pray for the unmarried in the congregation. We pray for those who long for a spouse. We pray that you would answer the desires of their hearts. We pray for the married, that you would fulfill the mystery of Christ in the church in their home. But we pray for us all supremely that we would have our hope fully set, not on such shadows, but the reality which is in Christ. And in the meantime, we pray that, that we all, in love and in faithfulness, might together bow to our Lord and worship him for he's written. He has desired our beauty. Strengthen us in the church, we pray. Renew our minds. Give us the power that we need for daily life in Jesus. Give us the joy and the fruitfulness of a new life. Then truly, we will be able to live.